I'm sure you've heard complaints or maybe had them yourself about our city's 911 hold times or slow ambulance response. But a few years ago, City Hall created the Community Safety Division to try and fix Portland's emergency response system. The goal is that by mid-2024, the financial operations of Portland's four public safety bureaus will live under one roof at the Community Safety Division. In this way, our city can develop a more holistic approach to Portland's community safety. So today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with Mike Myers, our previous fire chief and the now transition director of the Community Safety Division. He's going to walk us through what's working, what's not, and what the future of emergency response in Portland looks like. It's Tuesday, August 1st. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. You know, before we jump in, I just need to know, how many Austin Powers or Halloween jokes have you gotten on the daily? Has it changed at all? It hasn't changed, and you'd think at some point it would, just out of generational differences. But uh, I probably get a Halloween comment or a Mike Myers comment uh, uh, from Austin Powers probably once a week. <laughs> to this day. That must be so frustrating. <laughs> it's funny. Do you have any cool comebacks yet? No, not really. Uh, not yet. So I'm still uh, still listening. Listeners, if you have any cool comebacks uh, for Mike Myers, please send us them and we'll, we'll make sure he gets them. <laughs> so, you know, because you're helping uh, counsel the main four public safety and emergency response agencies, you kind of have a bird's eye view of all the issues they're currently facing. So one of the biggest complaints Portlanders have with emergency response are the wait times. Yep. What are you seeing as the main issues causing these backups? Well, uh, wait times, it's a very complex issue, even nationally. Um, so it's mm-hmm. not just here in Portland. Um, and wait time issues, they can originate from multiple uh, points of origin. And, and typically, they're more than one. It's not just one issue that's driving wait times, whether the wait times, and, and wait times should be defined. The, there are wait times in call taking when a caller calls 911. Mm-hmm. Uh, in response, when an ambulance and a fire truck uh, arrives on the scene, sometimes there's there are wait times for transport, depending on the number of ambulances that are available in a system, whether they're in service or out of service. Uh, there are wait times that we're probably all familiar with in the hospital systems across the country, and certainly here in Portland as well. When you arrive at the hospital, how fast are you offloaded from the gurney from an ambulance and then into a hospital bed? And so those wait times are all connected, typically, um, and there are multiple causes for those wait times. So I would assume, Claudia, you know, we can start with wait times in the call processing uh, at the 911 center. And, you know, I come from a uh, out-of-state, uh, out-of-market. Um, I arrived here in, in, uh, in like, 2016, um, having seen it done differently in, in a couple of different cities. And so a couple of things that I recognized uh, here in Portland that are different here than they are in other cities is most cities have already navigated through uh, why to call 911, both for emergency and non-emergency. And here in Portland, we only had one number for, you know, if you had a problem and you needed a police officer or a firefighter uh, or a a, a paramedic, you called 911 for everything. Yeah. And that bogs the system down when you're calling 911, when really it's a non-emergency call, which we do require a non-emergency number, like 311. Mm-hmm. Most systems, most major cities across the United States have long-standing non-emergency 311 uh, call-in numbers. Yeah, Portland didn't. We are just rolling ours out, Claudia, like right now. And that's funny you mentioned that because I remember I grew up 
uh, as in LA as a child, and and you were just told if you call nine one one for funsies, it's fifty dollars. It's a your parents get fined. And I don't right. know if we even have that here now. <laughs> They're just yeah. like, this wasn't an emergency. We're fining you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's yeah. how serious it was in larger cities because they don't want this. I want to hear about all the other wait times, but I just wanted to bring up a point that um, the 911 dispatchers and that bureau, like Bowick, ha has had a huge win because Steven Ziprich uh, won right. the North America, you know, the North America's 911 Operator of the Year, which also yep. includes Canada, which to me, I was just like, yeah, take that. <laughs> Um, but he actually said something very similar, just connecting the dots here. He, he, his first response was just like, we've grown as a city yep. so much. Yes. And the infrastructure pretty much hasn't kept up with that. And that would make a lot of sense if we, we get a bunch of new people. We only have one number. Everyone's calling it. Yep. Now you're waiting 15 to 20 minutes to speak to someone. That's right. And we can't blame this all on, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the fact that we didn't have 311. Um, but I do think over time, over the next, you know, this generation here in Portland, we have to start navigating as a residence to a 311 type system. We have to understand what's non-emergency and what's emergency and understand that and make choices as residents when we call. Staffing is also an issue. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, Director Bob Causey has done an amazing job. Bob started shortly after I did. Um, in uh, the 911 center, I think he came in at 2017, 2018, and he just did a fantastic job, kind of converting that 911 center over to a new um, new system to process calls, um, but also working on their staffing. Which at during during the COVID outbreak, I think you heard nationally almost every sector had a hard time staffing uh, for whatever it was, and when that impacts first responder. Um, uh, divisions like like fire departments or police departments or 911 center or our nurses, you know, we really feel it here when we have an emergency. You know, uh, it's okay when you go to your favorite restaurant and they may be down a few staff. That's one thing. But when you're needing to access the emergency medical system and they're down on staff as well, that's when we really, it really, you, you know, it can be life threatening. Mm -hmm. And it was, there was a, a report that came out a few months ago where someone died before uh, medical responders could uh, come get him. I th believe he died of a, of a gunshot wound. It was a hit and run. I'm sorry. It was a hit and run. And he waited about 30 minutes for the um, ambulance to come through. Do you remember hearing about that? I do. I recall that incident and I recall the, the media attention around that. Um, and again, I think when we talk about wait times, you know, that incident cannot solely rest on uh, this issue we're talking about right now. Wait times, again, are across the board. Um, and a lot of it is driven by staffing. So when you have a shortage and you're, you're required to have two paramedics on that ambulance every day, and let's say you might have north of 25 ambulances on shift every day, if you can't staff, if you can't get enough paramedics through the system, through the certification system, get them trained, onboarded, and on an ambulance, you're only going to be able to run enough ambulances that you can staff. You may be you know, south of 20 that day, you may only have, you know, 17, 18 ambulances on the, that day when you really needed, you know, 27 on that day. And when, so when that, when there's that kind of an issue, you know, the same call volumes coming in with less ambulances to respond to it, at some point, you're going to not have an ambulance available. So what are the most urgent priorities uh, in addressing the response times right now? So there are so many uh, with response times. And again, um, the problems that we're seeing in public safety Claudia, there is no one, if you do this one thing, it solves the problem. 
Mm-hmm. It takes a, it, it, they're all complex issues and there are multiple things we have to do to solve one problem. So response times start and originate from a resident having a problem and being able to access the 911 call because the response time in their head is the, I have a problem right now. Mm-hmm. How soon will somebody be at my door? You know, that's the response time in a resident's mind. Right. And so that all starts with the ability to access the 911 center. And so people can access it, right? We have, all have mobile phones. That's not a problem. And I think Director Causey from, from Bulk would say the same thing. There is much, there is a, we still need to improve on uh, call answering times uh, in, in the Bureau of Emergency Communications. So I know where Bob wants to go, Director Causey wants to get to. In, in systems that I've been in, when you call as a resident to 911, there is no wait time. It rings into the dispatcher's ear, the call taker's mm-hmm. ear, and they, they immediately say, please fire a medical. Mm-hmm. And we start the conversation. People are waiting here for you know 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And then if you listen to some stories, much longer, mm-hmm. especially if it's not emergency, they're hanging up. That wait time is um, dependent on many different things. We, we talked about a couple of them already. Staffing is a constant concern, but I think Director Kazi has a good plan and has been building up staffing, and he has a, a large number of individuals in training. I think things are turning the corner around staffing, and they have a different uh, call processing. Uh, they have multiple different call processing tools they're using. Yeah. I asked about the most urgent priorities in addressing the response times, and what we've talked about are just two things that we've already kind of hit at the top, which was yep. um, a volume of calls and and getting that three one one up and running, yep. um, and then uh, actually getting some some staff uh, for understaffed areas. Is there anything else that your uh, team has has honed in on? Sure. There's so well, let's can you p- progress kind of through the the matrix here. So as you know, as we get the call dispatched. Once it gets out of the dispatch center, the number one identifier on the ability to meet a response time is the availability of a unit to be there Mm -hmm. and be in the area. Like the fire department sends the closest unit by satellite. Uh, So it's not just your fires. If if something happens to you in the air in in Portland, it's the the, fire station that maybe down the road might not be the one responding to you. If an engine company from a different fire station is closer because they're driving through that part of town, the mm. satellite will pick them up and send them. Like that's that's a step that the fire department took in the, you know, probably 2020, 2019 to change the way they did that to, to have better response times. After that, um, the next thing that is impactful are hospital wait times. And the reason that's important uh, in the whole conversation around response times and, and why we're all, we all have to be partners in this is when a ambulance, so when we go to a call, we have a fire truck there with a paramedic on it and a, and a, a, a American medical response ambulance with two paramedics on it. Once they get to the hospital, the time, you know, that unit is still out of service. So if even if a fire department paramedic gets in the back of an ambulance to work with the team on the patient to the hospital, they're waiting in the hallway at the hospital to offload. Those, those hospital wait times are extremely important. So, mm-hmm. Because while they're waiting in the hallway, they're out of service. So we talked about, you know, we struggle to get enough ambulances on the street anyway because of a paramedic shortage. Right, and, right. you know, they're in the hospital waiting to offload, um, sometimes uh, longer than we would like. And I'm sure longer than the hospital would like. Um, that keeps that ambulance out of service. So even less ambulances available. And then we have longer response times again. So you can see how every one of these areas, Claudia, needs work. 
and, and again, this is not just Portland. Every city faces this convoluted issue on staffing. So even nurse staffing in an emergency room matters on response times in the street, mm-hmm. right? The ability when we get to the hospital to have enough staff to help us offload and get things going can backlog into the street. So it's that whole continuum of care. Okay, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, let's talk about the Portland Police Bureau. I noticed that one uh, emergency response team that was left out were, were the police. And I'm wondering if if you are able to speak about that, because a lot of people have been speculating. This is, of course, speculation, Mike, which I don't expect you to really go in on. But um, they've been accused by the public of quiet quitting, <laughs> which is uh, it's a big allegation. Uh, do you know what's going on right now in the police department to increase their or decrease their response times? Well, I can, uh, you know, I I don't want to speak for the police chief, but I can tell you it's not quiet quitting. Like I know that. And uh, I know, I think that when, you know, everything that has gone on uh, in, in, you know, the social environment and the fabric of of, our lives, all of us here as a community, including officers and all of us that live here, um, over the last five years, you know, uh, I can see how people might get to that, you know, get to that point. But I can tell you, you know, I sit through a lot of police briefings, listening to staffing. I do manage their budget. And so I, I do, you know, I pay attention to the struggles that they have. And this is not quiet quitting. Uh, what the police bureau is experiencing is a grave um, issue around staffing and the ability to catch back up. And it is a struggle. Uh, they do have a tremendous amount of vacancies. You know, I, I was in a meeting the other day uh, with one of the deputy chiefs, and he's, he was explaining to us, we have 800 sworn officers. 800. That sounds like a lot. But when you start taking out where these officers are signed and actually who's on patrol, you know, there was a, a discussion at uh, in the meeting that, you know, back in the day, you know, five years ago, they would have said, you know, any precinct cannot go below 130 officers. Like that's, you cannot, anything below that, they cannot functionally do the work that they're supposed to do. They're way below 100 officers every day now. They're that low, Claudia. So when I look at their response volume coming into police every day, I would say on the majority of the time, there are always calls waiting. They're never, they're all just going from call to call to call to call. And if there's something major, and as you know, there always is, there's always, you know, a shooting, a a bad traffic accident, um, you know, some kind of robbery in progress that they are busy going to. It takes more than one officer on those types of calls. Mm -hmm. But there is room, I think we would all agree, uh, and I certainly uh, have been pushing this, I think there there is room for improvement, however. The police bureau and the fire bureau tend to send everything they've got to all types of calls. Yes, I've noticed that. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been really vocal about, can we really look at all of the calls? And are there calls that, from a a policing standpoint, are there calls that don't require an armed officer? Like, do they really need to send an armed officer on this call? And uh, if the answer is no, or maybe it's a, 
yes, but can we, can we like work on this so the officer doesn't need to go so they can focus on the highest priority calls and maybe give those lower priority calls, you know, find somebody else to go on that call. Yeah. You know, you, you just, um, mentioned the possibility of sending unarmed officers, the, you know, basically triaging what is, what is this emergency, uh, entail and who needs to go there. And part of your division is to help support alternative safety response models that would alleviate that high volume of calls to 911 and other first responders. One of these teams has been getting a lot of attention lately, the Portland Street response. Mm -hmm. Are you able to speak on what the city is planning to do with that model? Uh, Data seem to point that it was working, but there's numerous reports that the city is not fully supporting or expanding the program. What I can say, Claudia, is that Portland Street Response remains under the um, work of the of the uh, fire chief, so it's in in the fire bureau. It does not it does not sit in my division, the community safety division. So I do not uh, supervise that uh, group, um, and I and I don't drive their policy or or the work that they do. Um, what I've heard, I can only tell you what I've heard. And again, I don't want to speak for um, a Chief Gillespie. Uh, or uh, Commissioner Gonzalez's staff. They are driving uh, where Portland Street Response uh, is and where they will go. What I have heard, though, Claudia, openly said in meetings, so I feel comfortable sharing it here, is that they are very supportive of Portland Street Response. They want it to be successful. They want to figure out a way to make it sustainable so it needs financially sustainable. Um, and, And we do need to figure out all of us on how it can operate best in Portland going forward. You know, one of the issues that Portland Street Response faced, and this was by no means any, any, in any way their fault, the inability in this country to help an individual that's addicted to, to, to drugs or has a very uh, high-level mental health issue that's, that, they're, that they're facing on the street, our inability of a society to provide a place for them to be taken to is resulting in what we're seeing out here. You can run Portland Street Response all day, and you can run police officers all day. I can find non-police approaches to responding to people in crises. Claudia, we will figure that part out. That is not that hard. Where do we take these people, Claudia? Mm -hmm. Where can they get help? Because if all our answer is, Claudia, we're going to go see them on the street, de-escalate, and leave them there, I don't know of a more inhumane thing that we can do. And it's not just our city, Claudia. It's across the country in our major cities. Well, it's it's a it was a federal mandate that passed down through Reaganism, but that's another conversation um, altogether. It <laughs> <laughs> but it but it's but it's an important one. I mean, yeah. I, I what do we do? We need legislative changes. We need mental health facilities. We need facilities that work. We need facilities that we can drop people off at. And they need to be open, staffed, and they need to be open and staffed today. Now, with that said, we're years away from that. I mean, that funding doesn't even exist. Those, those brick and mortar places aren't even, have not been identified. Staffing has not been hired. You know, we're a long ways away from that. But our voices matter. When really bad things are happening, it starts with us demanding change. And I, it really needs to be all the way up to the federal level. There's nothing the mayor can do. This isn't, you know, from a public health standpoint, I don't think there's anything that the, the mayor could not 
open a facility tomorrow. It doesn't have that power, but his voice does, and he's serious about this. You know, we need uh, change in this in this country, and we're seeing it right here in Portland for sure. Right. You know, as we look into the future of emergency response um, in our city, I'm hearing a few multi-pronged approach um, of getting more staffing, of getting facilities that we can actually send people who are struggling with mental health issues or drug addiction. Um, It's just hard to see our response systems flounder until we get there. What do you think needs to change in order to get there? Like, what else is being done? Well, there are some interim, you know, there are some interim steps uh, that have to be taken. I mean, I I think hope is not a method. (laughs) Hoping this will will get fixed is not a method. That's not an answer. Uh, Avoiding it is not appropriate. And so, you know, and waiting, just waiting for something to change is inappropriate. So we have to do something. You know, one of the solutions, and this is, you know, I don't know if it's controversial. It's certainly arguable. There are. But, but uh, you know, uh, we, we have to think of multiple uh, solutions. One of the solutions is this, we, we just opened this temporary alternative shelter site over in the Clinton Triangle. And, you know, Claudia, the idea behind it was open a location where people that, a very low barrier, so people that were living in the street, that were vulnerable, that were preyed upon, that have drug addiction issues, that are untreated, Give them a place to get out of that environment where they can still, they, a lot of them don't want to go to brick and mortar structures. They don't want to go to congregate settings like are inside of a warehouse. They don't want to go to a different kind of, you know, a different show. They want to live outside. Uh, they have certain things they want, like provide that for them so they'll come. Receive them in a way that they can accept. Allow the low barrier entry. And while they're there and they're safe from being preyed upon, provide those, start providing those services on site so they can start to understand their addiction, possibly get past it. Um, If they have other needs, like some of them need IDs, some of them have, you know, past felonies that need to be expunged. I mean, there's there's, uh, all kinds of things that we can help them with in these settings to get them set up so we can move them from a tent on the street um, into the site if they would like to come. These are invitations um, prep them and get them ready for uh, alternative or temporary supportive housing from there. So what you're saying is that on July 25th, the yes. Clinton Triangle opened up. This is the same facility that um, Mayor Wheeler has been pushing for, uh, for for almost a year now. And, and it's finally opening. And so what I'm hearing is the future of emergency response in our city looks like these types of facilities that are being opened. It quite possibly could. I mean, I think we, I, I, you know, Portland is an innovative city. Uh, we are leaders in many different areas. Uh, we also have our ch- extreme challenges, as you know, and we're not leaders in some areas, that's for sure. Uh, but this area, I believe that um, that we will be. Other Western, other cities, major cities across the West are trying different things. I believe that this is going to be a showcased um, opportunity, a best practice. Um, we, you know, it's yet, we get to see, we haven't seen outcomes yet, so we need to see that. We need to hear what those, the, the experience, um, is for people that are you know, living and working there, um, before we can, you know, tout it too much. Uh, but it's open. We believe it's the right step. Uh, again, I, we started off this conversation saying doing nothing is not the answer. We have to do something. Right. And we're hoping that all this somehow then 
alleviates response times. I'm just trying to bring it right around, Mike. Yeah, we can. <laughs> I can help you with that. <laughs> so I, I think if we're looking at still response times, you know, going back and tying it in, and I, and I think we started that conversation also saying no one thing will fix our response time. You have mm-hmm. to... You have to look at every item that's causing response time, wait times, and response time delays and start fixing each one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's response to houselessness, which is an ex, you know, a certain percentage of call volume, if we can realign that to a different location, that's the success. What's the next thing? And mm-hmm. so it is about appropriate staffing in the police bureau, appropriate staffing in the emergency rooms, appropriate staffing for our private ambulance companies, appropriate staffing at the 911 center, a new way we're going to triage calls at the 911 center, opening of a 311 full time, getting the temporary alternative shelter site open, finding alternative ways that we can send um, people to calls where pl- to free police officers up on certain calls. It's all of these things, Claudia, that we are working on simultaneously that ultimately, you know, we hope will uh, start to fix some of those delays and response times. Well, Mike, thank you so much for walking all of us through that. Um, we really appreciate all the hard work you're doing and, and also your time today. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Important topic. Portland's a beautiful city and it still is and it's been better and we can get back to it. I really believe it. And now for your microdose of news. Car thefts in Portland are down. In fact, they're at their lowest point in two years. And the new Multnomah County Auto Theft Task Force also announced its first high-profile arrest this past weekend. Investigators arrested a 24-year-old Portland man they say has been involved in multiple car thefts over several months. And an update on a story we talked about on the show last week. You might remember that in our conversation with sex educator and writer Elle Stanger, we mentioned that the Oregon legislature allocated $600,000 to study the effects of decriminalizing sex work. Governor Kotek is now saying she might veto that spending. Her office says the funding should come from the private sector. Not sure which private sector specifically, but Governor Kotek will announce her final decision August 4th. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please share, subscribe, and review. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>